0: Today we're pleased to have Jose Vignals now at the IMF, um, for a public lecture organized, I think, by the Department of Economics and Stickert. Uh, I'm the chair. I'm Albert Marcet, a professor here. Um, Jose, uh, so I I have to thank everybody for coming, and especially Jose, who I think his car is waiting at five minutes after three, so uh, we'll have to have, um, at three sharp we'll have to be leaving. Uh, Jose uh, started, I guess he was a master, he did his master here, one of the many uh, uh, master students who then uh, went on to a long career in economics, then he did his PhD in uh, Harvard, then he was a faculty member at Stanford, and in the early 80s, I think 84, he went back to Spain, where he was uh, at the research department in the Bank of Spain. So, I guess being Spanish, I can tell you the Bank of Spain, the research department at of, of, of the Bank of Spain was the place to be as a macro a macroeconomist in Spain. It was a uh, time later, many de- many good departments developed, but at that time it was a uh, very good place to be and I guess since then Jose has been uh, always in the middle of policy making and academic uh, academic enterprises Uh, he went from the research department to be the deputy government (coughs) the deputy governor of the Bank of Spain and in 2009 um, went to the IMF to be the financial counsellor and director of monetary and capital markets departments i was asking him um, if it is uh more challenging to be in the imf or in the bank of spain in this ma- in these times uh, he he can tell us later what is more troublesome what is a more troublesome uh, position to be in um, during his time in Spain, he participated very actively in the policy. Obviously the Bank of Spain did uh, some very innovative uh, things that have been um, uh, have been praised uh, and that have uh, lowered the damage done by the crisis in in the country and i 'm sure jose uh, in the, in those and in many other uh, instances made a big impact and Today he will talk about uh, the the title of the of the conference is towards a new financial system, where the IMF is playing a leading role, and uh, we'll have he'll have half an hour, and then there will be a uh, uh, twenty minutes for questions and answers from the floor. So,
1: stand. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you very much uh, Albert for this kind introduction, it's always good to be back at the LSE especially as uh, Albert said because I was here many years ago um, doing graduate work and uh, this is not the first time that I have been invited to come to the LSE. is the second time that I'm speaking uh, in this uh, Sanders uh, Theater, the old theater, which is, uh, which is a very, uh, very nice place. And it's good to have encountered some uh, friends and, and colleagues here. Now, as Albert was saying, the title of my talk is uh, uh, about uh, what's going on and, and what should we do in order to move to a new financial system whose main ingredient should be to be a safer place for everybody. Um, And what we're trying to do both at the IMF but also uh, internationally uh, is to go to a new financial system which has two characteristics. The first one is to be safer so, that we don't have this type of crisis ever again. But the other one is that the financial system must be a safer place, but also must remain sufficiently innovative and dynamic so as to finance strong and sustained economic growth going forward. So, I will devote the first part of my uh, lecture to talk about uh, what I think is needed to put this new financial system in place and the second part of the lecture I will develop a little bit more in detail what is it that we need to do from the viewpoint of the policies that are aimed not so much as safeguarding the stability of individual financial institutions but of safeguarding the stability of the financial system as a whole and these are the so-called systemic or macroprudential policies. Now having just entered into the fourth year since the beginning of the crisis this crisis by the way has been termed the great financial crisis it is now widely recognized that before the crisis we had a financial system which was not as good as it was uh, thought to be at the time at that time people were very happy Policymakers were happy Financial market uh, participants were happy, uh, banks were happy, hedge funds were happy, investors were happy, everybody was happy during the time of the so-called great moderation. Growth was high and sustained, inflation was low, and at that time there was extensive talk about a new paradigm, about policy having found the magic way of sustaining prosperity forever and the financial system was supposed to be one of the cornerstones of this fantastic time because the financial system was resilient you would have big shocks like the September 11th um, attacks like the bursting of the dot-com bubble like the Enron uh, Walcom accounting standard, uh, scandals all of these were important shocks but you know what? the financial system resisted well of the shocks. It was like a drop of, you know, like a stone in a pond. Little waves, but nothing else. So we all thought, what a great financial system we have. And we all went to many conferences and seminars, which were uh, basically explaining why the financial system had become so resilient. But underneath the surface, there were large vulnerabilities building up that ended up provoking a major crisis and which put the world on the verge of another Great Depression like the one we had in the early 30s. The results of the present so-called Great Financial Crisis have been devastating. An estimated 210 million people are unemployed across the globe increase of 30 million since 2007 which is when the crisis started. So far the cumulative output loss relative to trend the loss in GDP gross domestic product in those G20 countries which experienced a systemic crisis is about 26 percent of GDP In these countries, there has been, on average, a loss of 26% of GDP in cumulative terms since the beginning of the crisis. And as a result of the crisis and the policies fighting the crisis, the debt-to-GDP ratio of the G20 uh, advanced countries has increased by 35 percentage points from 75% of GDP to hundred and ten percent of GDP expected in 2014. So we are going back to the public debt levels that we had after World War II but with a difference. We haven't had a World War. So the fantastic era of the so-called Great Moderation ended in a great financial crisis, a great recession, and a great public debt overhang. And another great depression was avoided through the very creative and extraordinary policy measures that were taken by many governments around the world and by the G20 political leaders recognizing the importance of the problem and then trying to have coordination at the global sphere, which I think is one of the good things of the crisis, that it has led to more coordination more collaboration internationally because global problems need global internationally coordinated solutions. Now what is it that we should do in order to build a safer financial system? I think that in order to go to this new financial system that should be safer but still capable of supporting growth I think there is a need for four must-haves, for four preconditions. The first one is that we must have a regulatory system that is globally coordinated and which helps enhance the solidity of individual financial institutions, banks or non-banks. And it is very important that this is done in an internationally coordinated manner So as to avoid the scope for arbitrage across sectors and across countries, which could end up undermining not just competition, but global financial stability. So we need good regulations at the so-called micro-prudential level, which is nothing else, that we need to have individual financial institutions which are strong enough and that is something that you do by increasing the capital and the liquidity buffers of these financial institutions. But we have a second must have which is effective supervision. The difference between regulation and supervision in the financial system is that regulation is having good rules and supervision is enforcing the rules. And in the experience of the IMF, something that we have seen is that in many countries the problems that led to the crisis were not just that the rules weren't good in terms of regulation but that even when the rules were good they were not applied. So supervision was in too many cases at fault because national supervisors lacked both the ability to act they didn't have the mandate, the independence the resources or the tools to take prompt corrective action and deal with the problems at an early stage concerning their financial system but in many cases they didn't have the will to act because they were captured either by the political process or by the private sector. So supervisory bodies not only regulation but supervisors need to be changed in order for the new financial system that we want to put in place. The third must-have is a coherent resolution framework. For those of you who may not be economists or specialists in finance, let me tell you that one of the problems with the present crisis is that there were a number of institutions that were considered to be too big, too important, too complex to fail and you had to keep them alive in order not to undermine further the stability of the uh, financial system and of the economy. And we know that this has led to well-known moral hazard problems, because now, as a result of the consolidation that has taken place in so many countries, some of these institutions are even bigger now than they were before, so this problem has been exacerbated. But one of the important problems in the too-big-to-fail institutions is that these institutions were also too big to be resolved, basically too big to be closed, too big to be buried. And because they were too big to be buried, they had to be kept alive with enormous costs to taxpayers uh, as well. So it is very important that we, that we devise mechanisms to give a decent burial For these institutions, that we resolve these institutions both at the national level and also cross borders. Because the problem is that many of the institutions which were in trouble, for example, Citigroup, for example, Uh, AIG were too big to be resolved internationally because that would have required a degree of coordination among national authorities to liquidate to resolve a cross-border financial institution and there was no uh, mechanisms to do that this is something on which the IMF is working And we have suggested a pragmatic method to facilitate both national and cross-border resolution, as we have suggested what could be principles to be followed for enhanced supervision. And there is a fourth must-have, which is that in addition to having good regulation of the specific individual financial institutions, banks and non-banks, in addition to good supervision, to good resolution, you also need something else which is an overarching policy framework to address the stability of the financial system as a whole dealing with the system-wide interactions of institutions and markets and the role vis-a-vis the macroeconomy. And this is the so-called systemic or macroprudential framework. And being in Britain, where the government is uh, putting in place a new macroprudential uh, framework for regulation and supervision, that is something that uh, should be familiar uh, to many of you. So let me no- go now um, to make some remarks during the rest of my talk on this so called macroprudential policy Framework. And the reason why this is essential is because the crisis has vividly shown that the sum can be much more, or the whole can be much more than the sum of its parts, and that having each and every one of the financial institutions be safe doesn't guarantee the safety of the overall financial system, because many times what is in the interest of each financial institution individually considered may become a problem for the financial stability of the system if we are faced with a situation of increasing risk in certain markets we as financial institutions individually considered we may want to do what for us is the right thing which is to sell these assets which are subject to risk but if everybody does the same at the same time you may end up with fire sales which bring the price of these assets down to the ground and then you have an evaporation of liquidity in markets and then you have a problem for the financial system as a whole. So that would be just one example of why this macroprudential or systemic framework is so important. And now there is much discussion about macroprudential if you are in a policy meeting and there is a problem and you say, wait a minute, I have a macro prudential solution everybody would listen to you no matter what you say so macroprudential is has become a magic word but everybody understands a different thing for macro prudential and because this is the talk of the town in terms of financial sector reform and because this is something which is important in Britain and you're choosing a specific model of handling macroprudential regulation and supervision I would like to make some comments to uh, broaden your views on macroprudential and to tell you that there are many issues which are still unsettled because of that we should be humble I think that macroprudential framework, the systemic framework policies that try to look to contain and to mitigate the risks for the financial system as a whole are important. They can reduce the probability of crisis, they can make crisis less costly, but they will not eliminate financial crisis. Macroprudential policies are not a panacea, although they can be useful. So it is very important that we do not overpromise to society and that we keep the private sector always knowing that there may be problems and that no matter what financial system we have in place, there are likely to be problems, there are likely to be crises. so the important thing is that we have a system which is resilient, but crisis, there will be with or without a macroprudential regime. But as I said, crisis maybe will be hopefully less likely and less intense if they occur. Now, having said that, what macro-prudential policymakers should do is easily said, but difficult in practice to do. They have to identify systemic risks, they have to measure, ideally, systemic risks, they have to come out with the tools which are needed to mitigate systemic risks, and a decision has to be made about what are the institutional arrangements that are best suited to uh, implement these so-called macroprudential policies. Now the macroprudential policymaker in terms of identifying and mitigating systemic risks will have to deal basically with two types of systemic risks. Risks which affect the financial system as a whole. They are both cross-sectional risks and time-series risks. The cross-sectional risks are those which are related to the amplification of normal interactions across institutions and across markets and which may lead to a severe disruption in the financial system and ultimately in the real economy. So one objective of the macroprudential policy maker is to put in place policies that aim at making sure that institutions, financial institutions, do not all fail together, do not all need funding simultaneously, or do not all want to exit the same markets at the same time. In short, the objective is to short circuit the systemic cross-institution and cross-market knock-on effects that amplify initial shocks. So this is the cross-sectional part of systemic risk that must be dealt with by the macroprudential policy maker. But there is also a time series dimension, a time dimension, which has to do with the so-called excessive precyclicality, which is the inherent tendency of the financial system and of regulations to exacerbate booms in good times and exacerbate busts in bad times. If you're not careful, financial regulation may exacerbate or not do enough to counteract the propensity of the financial system to have credit booms and asset price increases, which are reinforcing each other in the upswing of the cycle, and which, when the cycle turns around, deals to credit deleveraging. And significant falls in asset prices. This is the time dimension, the procyclicality dimension. So these are the objectives to contain both type of risks. Now, what are the tools that should be at the disposal of the macro potential policymakers? And in principle, some people have said, monetary policymakers have one tool in normal times: the uh, official interest rate. Macro prudential policymakers should have also one tool. And that's something that I don't agree with. I think that there is a variety of tools that should be used by the uh, prud- macro prudential policymakers because there are risks to financial stability that may happen in different parts of the financial system or that may have to be combated through different tools. For example, to combat the cross-sectional type of risks there are things that are already being done in the so-called Basel III process which is the new regulation for banks which leads to banks having higher capital and higher liquidity buffers and that's something that may help also from the systemic uh, viewpoint and there are reforms which are underway in order to enhance the safety of financial market infrastructures, for example, in derivative markets, so that you avoid the domino-like effects that happen, for example, when Lehman Brothers failed, which is that derivatives markets, of which there are about $600 trillion values in the world, they're mostly bilateral contracts, which means that in a bilateral contract one of the counterparty fails, this is going to lead to a cascade of failures, and at the end there are going to be tremendous problems. Well, there are now processes in place to shift these bilateral contracts into being clear by central counterparty entities, which basically means that the risk is going to be netted, and therefore that you're going to reduce the probability of uh, contagion as a result of an initial shock in the financial market. But there is more that the macro prudential policymaker will have to do. There are more tools that are needed. For example, once you identify what are called systemically important financial institutions, which are those that would be too big to fail, that would create a lot of trouble if they fail in the financial system, you have to address the problems related to these institutions. And you may want to do that through other tools, which are precisely designed to deal with systemic risk. For example, if you're an institution which is systemically important and you have a lot of systemic risk that you impose on the rest of the system, then you have to pay a price for it. You have a spillover vis-a-vis everybody else, and like the factory which pollutes the uh, 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 air, has to pay a higher tax for this pollution, then you have to pay a higher price for the um, systemic risk that you embody either by holding higher capital or by holding higher liquidity or by paying a higher tax or levy which is a function of your systemic risk you name it but what is important is that you pay a price which is proportional to the systemic risk you have and that's a decision that would also uh, be uh, looked at by the macroprudential. A uh, uh, policymaker, and of course, to deal with the second type of risks, the so-called procyclicality, excessive procyclicality risks, the macroprudential regulator can use some tools, like countercyclical capital or countercyclical provisions, which basically mean that banks and other financial intermediaries will have to recognize a basic principle of financial prudence, which is that risks do not arise in bad times risk arise and accumulate in good times and they materialize in bad times so you have to create buffers in good times that can help support you when the going gets rough you have to have more capital more liquidity more provisions, more buffers, as a bank, as a financial intermediary, that you accumulate in good times so that when you're hit by problems you can use them and not fail. And that is something which was absent in the financial system before the crisis. So these procyclicality instruments, in terms of counter-cyclical capital, counter-cyclical provisions, are important for the macroprudential policy makers to use, as well as other things like adjusting loan-to-value ratios in mortgage markets when you have an explosion of asset prices uh, in, in in housing and other tools like mar- margin requirements and so on. Now in designing the right macroprudential or systemic policy framework, one doesn't only need to decide which tools have to be used, but also but also who is going to be the macroprudential prudential uh, policymaker. And here, there is no one-size-fits-all model, because different countries have different traditions, different institutional structures, and different types of financial systems. And if you look now at what's going on internationally, you would see that, for example, in Britain, there is going to be, in the UK, there is going to be a financial system with a macroprudential regulator, which is going to be the Bank of England, which is going to call the shots, the central bank. But if you look at the Dodd-Frank bill which was just passed in the United States, it is not the Fed who is the systemic or macroprudential regulator. There, there is a financial system oversight, or financial sector oversight uh, council, which is chaired by the Treasury, and which is integrated by the different regulators Sectoral regulators and also by the Federal Reserve which is the agent of the process. And other countries are going to go uh, or are going in different dimensions. So as I said there is no one size fits all approach but what is important is that whoever does the uh, macroprudential uh, task be the central bank or not a number of principles are observed when putting in place these macroprudential frameworks. And we at the IMF are being asked now by a number of countries, mostly emerging markets, developing countries, saying, could you provide us with some advice on how to set up these macroprudential policymakers?" We see what the British are doing, we see what the Americans are doing, we see what the French are going to do, but what should we do? So, on the basis of our experience, we think that no matter how do you uh, locate the macroprudential uh, policymaker, if you are going to put in place a macroprudential systemic framework, you have to obey certain, to follow certain key principles, which are mainly the following. First, you need to have just one entity taking care of the uh, health of the system as a whole. You cannot have responsibility spread over different entities because that's a recipe for problems. And I think that the reforms going on in the United Kingdom start from this premise. When we had the responsibility for financial stability spread across the Bank of England, the FSA, and the Treasury, didn't work, so let's consolidate. So one needs to be just one single macroprudential overseer or dedicated body. Principle number two is that this body, wherever it's located, inside or outside of the central bank, should have access to all the information which is necessary to perform its duties, which is to spot risks to financial stability for the system as a whole. And that means that this macroprudential policymaker has to have not only enough information to identify the risks but also enough knowledge of what I would term the macroprudential transmission mechanism in order to know how these risks may translate into outcomes, negative outcomes, for the financial system and the economy as a whole and how, by using tools, these risks may be mitigated and this is something which is very difficult because knowing what is the right model that rightly captures the macro financial linkages we always knew it's difficult but after the financial crisis we know is even much more difficult than what we thought uh, before. Principle number three the macro prudential policymaker needs to have the ability and the will to act. It means that it must have the mandate, the authority, the resources the professional independence which are needed in order to be able to do what it takes, and it should have control over the macro prudential tools. But because of that much power being given to it, it must be accountable to government, to parliament, and to society. And this is very important because the decisions taken by the macro prudential policymaker will often be unpopular. For example, if you increase, or if you decrease, better, loan-to-value ratios in order to rein in excesses in the housing market, you would be accused of making it more difficult for young couples to have their own home, or hurting the um, housing industry and creating unemployment in the housing industry. So, decisions may be politically unpopular, as they may affect different interest groups or industries and this is because it would be necessary to have social to build social legitimacy for the role of the macroprudential policymaker as there is now social legitimacy and social support for the role of other policymakers for example of the central bank whose role in society and in the economy is now undisputed. When the Bank of England increases interest rates, this is something which is taken to be for the good of the country. When the ECB raises interest rates, when the Fed raises interest rates, it's something which is considered to be uh, a legitimate legitimate action. The same thing should be true of the macroprudential policymaker. Another principle which is very important is... That um, there is enough communication and cooperation among the different policymakers. If the mac- the macroprudential policymaker must be in constant dialogue with the microprudential policymaker, meaning the entity which is in charge of taking care of the financial stability. <laughs> Have I done something wrong? <laughs> Maybe, maybe this is an early warning on uh, systemic risk for the old building.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thanks,
1: for Jose.